Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. And for those of you who don't know, Cody is uh, he's out of the driver's seat this week. Uh, his his baby came. He's he's staying up all night trying to match being a dad now and watching basketball. And so um, the co-hosts of what do we call this show? Thinking NBA Spaces on Twitter. Something like that. My co-hosts have been nice enough to stop by from that show and fill in the hot seat this week. Mo DeKeel from The Athletic, former uh, video coordinator of many places in the NBA, and John Schumann, NBA senior writer at NBA.com. John, I think you said before we recorded 19 years you've been doing yeah. this? Yeah. yeah. 19 Amazing. years. Amazing. So <laughs> I appreciate you guys coming in on short notice and, and pinch hitting uh, and and hopefully, you know, having a fun time. Well, I don't know what we're going to talk about today, but maybe basketball. I, I thought we were here for badminton. I, I I have so many badminton takes lined up and ready. I'm to excited. Go. This I'm a, can I say it? Can I say it? First time, long time. First time, long time. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. If I could ever figure out how to get like a call in operation going, um, I think it would be a dream of mine to hear first time, long time. But I mean. John, you just took care of that. So you made his, you're making dreams come true, John. That's what you do. <laughs> That's why you've been in the game for 19 years. I'm I'm, I'm in the New York area, so I am a uh, longtime listener of the classic sports uh, talk show, the Mike and the Bad Dog Show. So that is a you know I've always wanted to. In, in addition to Ben always wanting to hear it, I've always wanted to say it. You know, Ooh. first time, first time caller, long time listener. <laughs> Uh, so, so if you if you aren't familiar with our uh, Thinking NBA Spaces collaboration, it's pretty fun. We get coaches from around the league to come in and talk about all kinds of cool stuff. And last week's show, we had Charles Lee, assistant of the Boston Celtics, who seems like he's probably going to be a head coach pretty soon in the league. You guys, you guys feel that? What do you guys think? He he always he I think this year he. He was either had the most votes or tied for the most votes when I do the GM survey in the preseason, and they have yeah. who's the best assistant coach in the in the league is one of the questions. And the last couple of years, he's been uh, at or near the top of the list. Yeah, he was. He'll certainly get a shot. I don't know. I mean, probably another podcast for another time. But like, <laughs> I don't know how many uh, opportunities there'll be this year. We'll, we'll we'll see. I don't know if we're gonna have a high turnover as we've had in the past. So, uh, but he'll get definitely get a lot of looks. Okay, so this had me thinking about coaches these days um, who have been successful. I mean, Doc Rivers just coming in and and filling in in Milwaukee. A, I don't know if you guys have like general thoughts about that offense and Doc taking over and what has to happen. But B, just all this stuff has been swirling around in my head, and I've been thinking. Are more of the really successful kind of sexy superstar coaches coming from a different lineage these days than in the past? It seems like most of the sort of steps to become a coach were you're a good player or you're a kind of a, a veteran player. You get into coaching and we've even had big names sort of quote unquote cut the line to borrow Steve Nash's phrase. Steve Nash in Brooklyn, Chauncey Billups to Portland are recent examples of like just retired players who have become coaches. Um, I don't know. I wanted to throw that out there at you guys. It feels like the Brad Stevens, Mark Dagnall, Eric Spolstra from the film room, um, Will Hardy. I mean, we could just keep going on and on. It feels like there's sort of a new generation of uh, coaching background these days. I think it's cyclical. I think it's something that kind of just goes, you know, ebbs and flows with it. And and how many, excuse me, how many players kind of jump into it and, you know, I don't know if we're going to see a lot of head coaches with no experience, you know, former players with no experience kind of get a opportunity. I think we're going to start to see more uh, it go back to they got to work their way at least a couple of years as an assistant before really kind of getting that. I think there's, you know, the last couple have not been great, you know, with Chauncey, with with the Stephen Nash experiment, although I don't think he was a bad coach. I think he was just put in a very impossible situation but then look at Derek Fisher and and whatnot I think you're kind of seeing a little bit of a struggle and then you're seeing like you've listed off guys right off the top of your head that have been successful right off the bat that don't have former player experience and I think that's kind of an important thing 
to to monitor, but I think it's just going to ebb and flow with it. I think it's uh, what's the the situation in terms of what's the candidate pool look like. I think that's always my thing. When anybody wants to fire their coach or a fan says that, I'm like, All right, who are you hiring? Because that's just as important as you know if you're going to fire your coach. And right now, I don't know if there's a lot in the pool in terms of former players. Yeah, I, I think it's just I don't know. I, I mean, I do see your point, Ben. I think it does sort of trend. I think we are trending a little bit more to non-players, but I think it's also just a case by case basis. Like there are former players who've been really good coaches. Um, Larry Bird is one of the best players in the war uh, ever, and was a really good coach. Um, and then there's some that aren't. Um, and I, I would go back to the GM survey, the guy, the one player who's gotten the most votes over the years as a who will be the best head coach someday is Chris Paul. And I've personally asked Chris Paul, do you want to be a coach? And the answer is absolutely not. Um, and so I think it's 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 one, it's a mentality. Like, do you want to actually go from being a player to then being staying in the grind really a different kind of grind, more mental and less physical, but it's still a grind to be a, a, a full-time coach for, you know, in the NBA over nine months, right? Like that's, that's tough. And um, I think you see a lot of young guys in the league, whether they're just across the league now, whether they're player development guys, film guys who are really eager and really want to, do this and really want to be head coaches someday. So I think that pool is always going to be there. I think the player pool is, is, is more shallow actually, you know, that seems, sounds weird, but I think the player pool of potential head coaches is probably a lot more shallow than the, uh, the pool of non-players. Yeah. And I would just chime in. I'm, I'm not sure if Chris Paul would make a great, basketball (laughs) and it's not a shout out chris's knowledge i just you know there's there's a lot more that goes into it than just the basketball exactly yeah i I figured mo you could also speak to uh i mean when we were talking to charles last week for those who missed it like we asked him what his day was like um and by the time you get to like three or four o'clock you're like man do you sleep because this game day gets up at 6 30 he does the personal workouts with drew holiday um, they have multiple coaches meetings. They're prepping for a game. They have specific scouts. I think the guy has to eat and exercise himself. I mean, that just doesn't even get you to five o'clock. And then, as you know, as you guys know, like any game cycle, four thirty, five o'clock for a seven, seven thirty tip off. And then you're like done and leaving the arena hours later. Um, you know, that's a long, that's a long day. That's like a 15, 16 hour day. Game days can be brutal. I mean, there's a lull in game days that it, it, like it's kind of like a two hour sort of window usually around like one to three where there's really nothing going on in that moment and i think that's when you get to do whatever it is work out you know go go find a snack or or, or do that stuff you know it's it's that little break right there is is your is your one break for the rest of the day because a lot of times you have to be at the arena early you have to be ready for the players to come in and do all that workout stuff for me i chose to nap that was always my <laughs> nap window was get a snack and nap and then you know head over to to staples but i think that's the the challenge in terms of coaches in general it's just such a long day with everything you know the players get to come in for shoot around leave and then go to the the game for their and be ready on the court at their proper time that's what is, is so amazing about Doc Rivers is like the dude has never had a break. Like I remember when he went, he got he parted ways with the cloud. Was he fired by the Clippers? I don't fired. know where his contract wasn't yet. And then like a week later, he was he was hired by the Sixers. And I was like, wait, don't like you've coached every year for like the last twenty years. Like, don't you want like a season off to just chill and hang out and go go to Europe or something like that and just watch basketball casually like but, or it's amazing and then he he got he got that chance this year and then nope nope I'm going right he's diving right back in because they can't relax like us like John you think just gonna sit back and watch the game uh and and, and, and like whatever like a fan and hang out and chill. they don't have that in him you know, I remember, like- I remember seeing Tom Thibodeau at the Sloan conference the one year season like he wasn't a coach he looked great, Tom. T- he looked awesome. Like I, he's in such good spirits. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but he also had a crap ton of notes. I'm sure with him, he had a whole bunch of film. You know, he, you know, I've I've done it. I'm sure you've had 
you know, former coaches reach out to you with, with questions about stats and things like that. They're constantly thinking and working. I mean, don't get me wrong. Doc was definitely enjoying the golf course a lot, you know, the before he took this Bucks job, that break he had in between. He was he's on the course a lot, but it's a a, a desire, like it's the need to compete, I think, with these dudes sometimes. That's insane. It doesn't allow them to relax the way we would normally relax. Like a like a midday nap, for instance. Yeah. Uh, naps are so good. Don't get me started. <laughs> Um, all right, let's let's change gears a little bit here because another thing that's kind of hallmark of this season, it feels to me, is all these like movers and shakers. You know, 20 games go by, all of a sudden some team gets really hot and comes out of nowhere. John, you do the power rankings for NBA.com. You must be feeling this. All the teams on hot streaks, the Jazz 117 of 21 at one point. The Knicks are on a similar run. The Cavs, I think, are 18 and 4. Four in their last 22, something like that. Um, the Suns have gone from 500 to now, I think they're, what, what are they, about 10 games over 500 as we, we record this? So I, first of all, can you guys remember a season with so many teams just sort of spiking out of nowhere and, and the standings having this kind of uh, oscillation or, or volatility without necessarily the same level of like parity. It's not just like everyone's jammed together. It's like, oh, this eight seed all of a sudden wins 17 of 20. So now they're the three seed. Yeah, last season was definitely a season of parity, right? Like, wasn't there just a bunch of teams that were within two games of 500 for a long time? Um, yeah, this, seem, this season is definitely different. I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I, I have a terrible memory, like remembering seasons like this, but... I can't remember it. One team you haven't mentioned is the Kings have won like five, like five or six out of seven. They're five and one on their road trip. And uh, as we speak, they're about to play Cleveland uh, to finish their road trip. So which should be a fun uh, little matchup of rested teams that are both playing well. Um, no, I, I can't remember it. And it's fun. Like it's like we have the sort of the bottom, bottom part of the league. Um, but yeah, it's fun to see like teams go from, uh, not so great. Like even the the Hawks are sort of showing some signs of life, which is nice. Um, you know, so it seems it's nice to see like teams go for not so great and and to to good. And I guess maybe it's just the the way it is with an eighty two game season where you're going to have highs and lows, and no team is just going to be consistently good or consistently decent. You know, there's going to teams are going to go up and down. So. I mean, I, I can't remember a season like this. It's definitely different than last year where it just felt like there were just so many teams just hanging around 500 for like 75% of the season. Yeah, I mean, this this weird this season is kind of weird in the sense of like this team gets hot early, then another team gets up hot early. Like Cleveland's kind of a great example of it where they're, you know, 12 and 13 during that, you know, the the start of the season. Garland goes out for a long period of time. Mobley goes out for a long period of time. I mean, normally, like, okay, they're screwed. They've lost two of their top four guys, and now they're third in the East. Like, it's a uh, situation where you're just kind of watching it sort of it's almost like a it's almost like a basketball game how we have say games are a game a game of runs. It's like teams are making random runs throughout the course of the season in a way that's a little bit something that we're not used to. And it's it's hard to kind of project it like the saying used to be like you knew where the season was going to kind of end after the first 20 games with the standings. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think teams are figuring things out and and finding a rhythm and, and get hot at the right time. I mean, the Knicks have exploded at this point. I think there's just so many different teams that have the capability of putting a good stretch together. And I think part of it too is it's a good number of teams they get to beat up on that aren't very good. Right, and I think right, that's yeah. a big, big, big part of it as well in that sense. But I think it creates a lot of that sort of volatility in the standings. Okay. So, so let's dive in on Cleveland because they fascinate me. Um, I, I go to scout them, I go to catch up on them. And there are, there are a few really cool games there that we can talk about where you might have some signal through the noise. But half of the games, especially with these home-and-home home or the two, the two games in a row against the same team, you're like, okay, so you beat Portland a couple times. That's cool. All right, you beat the Pistons like three times. Um, I don't even remember if Cleveland played the Pistons three times in this run. But, John, you must feel this. Like you get a lot of these 
teams, I don't think there have been five teams this poor in poor differential in the same season before, at least that I can think of. Um, we'll, we'll try to look that up before we get out of here and double check. But like, it's not one or two teams. It's not an expansion team or two inflating the standings. It's confounded with what Mo said. Like when a lot of teams are making runs, the Knicks make a trade. The chemistry changes. Now they're hot. What does it mean when you get five or six wins in a row against like the Blazers um, or or some other sort of bottom bottom team that's just not going to pick up the Spurs? They're just not going to pick up many wins throughout the season. I, start with the Cavs. Like, what, what do we make of them based on that? I think they got last Monday. They got like a legit win over the Clippers. They beat the mm. Clippers. It wasn't too fluky. They didn't shoot like super well from three-point range. I think Isaac, Isaac Okoro was three for four, but that maybe was offset by Donovan Mitchell, who was like two for 10 or something like that. Um, so yeah, you, you're, you're constantly sort of searching for the games between good teams where both teams are healthy and both teams are rested. And unfortunately, those games are few and far between. Um, because of the schedule, even this year, there's just a little bit more, um, games where one team is rested and the other isn't, you know, because they put the in-season tournament in, it just created a couple of more open days in that, uh, tournament week that then sort of squeezed the schedule just like a half a degree more, um, in every other week. Um, so yeah, you're constantly searching for those good games and like even Cleveland, so like that game over the Clippers, I think that was with Mobley, but without Garland. It was before Garland had come back. Right. Yep. Yep. So I think they can they continue to be sort of like under the microscope because both those guys have played three games uh, as we speak, um, coming back from injury, but only two of them were together. Like Mobley came back and then missed a game. Garland came back, so they played two games with their full like starting lineup together. And that lineup has played 18 total minutes in those two games. And those two games were against the Pistons and the Spurs and the starting lineup outscored the Pistons and Spurs by one single point in those 18 minutes, small sample size doesn't really matter. So like, let's continue to like, it's, it's, you're sort of continuing. And like, like, as we speak, they have Sacramento who's playing really well right now. So that's a, that's a sort of a, all right, circle this game let's watch let's all watch this game between two good teams playing well rested and healthy yeah it's it's hard in the the way the schedule kind of lines up to feel like you get a great gauge of these teams i just try to kind of look at the fact that they don't have a ton of wins against the good teams that we would say you know like when you just go to the extended uh standings just on that above 500 they're 10 and 14 like it's not you know they're beating the crap out of all the bad teams and i think that's that stretch where they've gone on this run they did that they i looked at it while you were talking it's like washington a couple of times san antonio detroit it's you know it's it's beating up on teams that are in a you know situation where they're not trying to win and i think it's it's hard to kind of figure out okay is this real or not because sometimes that can propel you into like, all right, we're ready to roll. Like we might see them surge even beyond that and start taking on some of these tougher teams as they get down the stretch of the schedule because of what they learned in that. But the big part is, and that's the what John kind of threw out there, which just when they have their actual starting lineup together, and it was a small sample size against a bad team, but to be just plus one point, it, it you that's the concern, right? Like that's what you look at and you're like all right, we're back to does Donovan Mitchell work with Darius Garland? Does Mobley work with Allen? Like, you're back to the same old questions that we had 20 games ago. And I think that's going to be the the thing that we got to parse out in the second half of the season. Okay, well, I want to ask- say, I was yeah, going to say John. one thing. Taking care of business against bad teams is better than yes. not taking yes, care yes, of business. Yes, for sure. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a predictor. It's an indicator that, like, things are going well. Um, and I want to I want to actually come back and ask you guys about the lineup and some of the more specific stuff with the Cavs because I have been catching up on them uh, this week quite a bit. Interestingly, when you go pull up, um, what did you say? They were ten and fourteen against yep. top teams. Okay, so on our five hundred and above, right? So. so on our board for for Patreon subscribers, Patreon dot com slash Thinking Basketball, we track versus top ten teams by net rating. The Cavs against the top 10 
are plus 0.6. And you may think, when you hear that, you may think, like, that is okay. That's actually the sixth best net rating against top 10 teams in the league. And so, like, 10 and 14, maybe above 500, maybe that's not that great. But you look in the last month, they have a, they have a plus 14 net rating in the last month. And trying to like parse out what, how much of that is beating the Wizards by 30? How good is it to beat the mm-hmm. Wizards by 30? And how much of that is, you know, the Clippers as of right now have only lost one game on their Grammy road trip. And that one game is to the Cavs. They, the other good win they had recently was against the Bucks. Um, I think they played two yes. games in a row. They played them twice, right? Yeah, and they split. They, play, they, play, they played them three, three times. times in the yeah. stretch, yeah. Okay. And two and one. Two and one, right. Yeah. So I, I you know, I'll, I'll throw it to you guys. The, the place I kind of want to start is Donovan Mitchell. The, I have some thoughts that go back a couple seasons with what I'm seeing with him. But when you turn them on, John, like where do you have them in your power rankings right now? Do you, do you think there's actually something there that could elevate them to maybe that like, hey, this team is dangerous in the playoffs all of a sudden? I have them six. Um but I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to let you in a little secret that where I rank teams isn't all that important. <laughs> um, and so I put, uh, when I'm writing, I put uh, 99% of the effort into what I'm writing about the teams and 1% of the effort into the order that they're, they're listed. Um, but no, I, I think they are legit good. Like I think I have them higher than the Knicks, for example, just because I do think they have better wins than the Knicks do over the last month plus, you know, the Knicks are that team that, um, you know, they've got some good wins recently. They clobbered the the nuggets at the end of the nuggets re- uh, road trip. Um, I'll say about a week and a half ago. Um, but are that one of those teams that just is much, much better against bad teams than, than against good ones. Um, and the Knicks have obviously had, had a little bit of slippage without Randall and, and Anobi the last few games. Um, so, yeah, I have them higher than the Knicks. I think they're just a little bit more legit. But at the same time, like I said, like we haven't seen what they are supposed to be, right? Like we haven't seen that in the last month plus. So let's 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 see that now and and see where it you know where it falls. It's funny because I think I'm a little bit on I, I have it flipped in terms of that, but they're both kind of very similar teams and they both beat the crap out of the bad teams and have had just a very okay record or just below 500 record against the, the good teams in that sense. For me, the, the question for me with them is just like, how does the offense work when you have two dominant small guards and then you have two bigs that can't really shoot? Like, how do you make that work? And then you have, Max Drews says your wing player who's not shooting it well from three right now. Uh, maybe you put in Sam Morrill there, but I don't even know if he's going to be much of a, a help for you as at the, the three. Like, it's just a hard thing to figure out offensively. You know, I think part of the reason why they went on the run that they went on wasn't just that they were playing bad teams, but it all kind of fell into place. Like, you know, you're, you're doing your scout, Ben, on them. I'm actually going to probably write about them this week for The Athletic and going through their stuff, and I'm trying to go through those games without the two guys. And the one thing I just noticed right away was just like, man, they, they're they running more offense. Like, they're actually running offense, and it's not just, all right, Donovan, you take it. All right, Darius, you take it. And then let's work in Mobley and, and Allen. And I think that's one of the things you're kind of seeing in, in that, like, their evolution. I'm like, why can't you do that when you have Darius back and have Mobley and whatnot, if they can kind of find a balance of that stuff and then go into ISO, I think they're in a better position offensively. I just don't know if they have that and if they're going to be able to find that in time. Whereas I feel like the Knicks know who they are at this point and have that identity kind of sewn up. And I think that's also the challenge of, well, those guys were out for so many games. So now you got to figure it out. But it also feels like when they were out, you have, to your point, like, Hey, if you run a three-man set and you involve Max Struess, all of a sudden Max Struess can attack, get downhill, make a nice pass here and there. Isaac Okoro, to me, he's been much better than he was in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, sharper decisions, just you know, he's a year older. The team is a year older. Dean Wade is a year older off the bench. Levert, more offensive opportunities off the bench. All of it comes back to me to why don't they stagger? 
you know, because I think the idea of Allen and Mobley having one redundancy where they can't shoot and, and Evan Mobley is a, just because he was out for a little while. He's still a great defender. I mean, the, the Clippers game his first game back. They stuck him on Kawhi Leonard. He did a pretty good job chasing Kawhi Leonard around for the 15 or 20 minutes he was out there or whatever. Um, but in the backcourt, then you get the redundancy with Garland and Mitchell. And I, and I do want to get to Mitchell. Uh, we've been teasing Mitchell quite a bit, but like, <laughs> why, why not stagger? Why not get something like that? Because the other thing I notice, Mo and John, when I watch them in this recent run with those guys out, this, this team used to be built like an hourglass, right? You had the, the guards who were ball dominant offensively on one side of the lineup and then the two bigs on the other side. Now you turn them on and there's a bunch of wings out there. It's Dean Wade out there. It's uh, Sam Merrill, the shooter out there. It's a Coro out there. Um, Max Struess, right? It's, it's more like you've got Mitchell, Wings, and a big Jared Allen, and he's played well. I mean, it just feels like the stagger is the way to go because I find it hard to, to see how the whole thing fits together when they're all out there. Yeah, I'd have to look and just see how much – because it's not like they took – in years past, they took Allen and Mobley off the floor together and then brought them back together. Like they staggered them. And there were lots of minutes where one was on the floor without the other. Um, and maybe less so with the guards. I'm not sure. Um, Cause I remember constantly monitoring, okay, how are they doing with the two bigs together versus how are they doing with one on the floor without the other? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, and maybe, you know, this, period of success without Mobley and Garland just sort of makes the formula all that more clear, right? Like Dean Wade needs to play. Like we need that four man who can shoot and who can space the floor and allow Jared Allen to roll in the middle comfortably. And um, Mobley, yeah, when you're out there with Jared Allen, you're going to have to shoot better. He did make a career high three threes, I think, in San Diego the other in San Antonio the other night. So it was like San Diego. It was like was when, like, when, when, when the Clippers are back. <laughs> yes, pardon me. Bill Walton One other here. thing I will say, Cavs, quick point. Um, in that series against the Knicks last year, they got absolutely destroyed on the glass. Yes, last yep. year they were twentieth in both offensive and defensive rebounding percentage. Uh, this year they're thirteenth and eleventh. So slight improvement on the glass, maybe not a little bit more than slight improvement on the glass is just another thing to sort of just keep in mind. I would say the one thing about staggering too, though, is you have to have guys off the bench that can help you to stagger. You can't just be in a situation where, um, okay, we take Mobley off. Who are we putting in? I think last year, you know, Dean Wade had a lot of injuries last year. Obviously they didn't have Struess. Um, Okora wasn't as good last year as he is this year. There's a lot of, you know, Sam Morrill was, uh, Merrill was a, uh, guy that they didn't play. You know I mean? We didn't have. And then simply now, even at the start of this year, he wasn't getting a lot of minutes until these guys got hurt. And then he found his way into the rotation. So now it's, now it might even be a little bit more easier to stagger if they want to. And I don't think they, I mean, I think it's just finding that balance. And the hard thing when you're staggering too, is like, okay, who can play with Donovan when it's Donovan on the court? Okay, who can play with, with Darius when it's Darius's time on the court? And, you, you know, you have to start kind of playing that game and start figuring out, okay, that's the chemistry. That's the stuff the coach has got to figure out in all of those things. I think, you know, I think JB, I think uh, he got really kind of uh, maligned last year for the playoffs, and people were basically saying, like, you got to fire him. I thought that was way too soon of a – hook people were trying to give him. I think, you know, this was just the situation of the team wasn't as deep as it is this year. And I think you're seeing some of it now kind of come to fruition, but now he's got to figure it out because once he brings everybody back, he's got to put that whole flow together and figure out the proper rotations in that stuff and then allow for that, to, the, the staggering to happen the way you hope, Ben. Okay. So I've teased it long enough. Um, Donovan Mitchell. This is like the third consecutive middle of the season. I don't know if it's always in January or February or when it starts, but he looks amazing. He looks amazing physically. He looks a step faster than everyone. He's obviously one of the shiftiest, like low center of gravity, sharp change of direction players 
every Cavs game I've turned on recently, he's just slicing through defenses. We did a video on him a couple years ago when he did this exact same thing in the middle of the season in his last year in Utah. And he had a very similar run at the exact point in the season last year uh, in Cleveland. Now, both of those times when they got to the playoffs, there might have been some minor injuries. I remember he had an ankle, I think, in the last Utah series. I can't remember if he had a... uh, I think he had a tweak last year as well in the Knicks series. So maybe it's just an injury. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just small sample and he's rolled some ankles. But like... Do you guys buy what you see? Is there a midseason thing going on with him? Can we get this in the playoffs? And if we get this in the playoffs, how good is it? Because at least from my perspective, the games I'm seeing, and it's just reminding me of like midseason in Utah a couple years ago, uh, he, he looks unbelievable offensively. I mean, I talked about the athleticism, but the decision-making, the passing, he, he's... He's got a command for the game when he gets into the paint where he's like, let me look this way. Let me throw a lob. Let me kick it to the corner. He had one where there was a broken play the other day. The ball came back to him, and without even thinking, he threw it behind his back to Okoro cutting on the baseline. Mm. The ball actually hit a big man's knee and still bounced to Okoro. He's like, he's playing at that level, um, but we really haven't seen it take off, I think, other than his scoring explosions back in the bubble a couple years ago, things like that. That was planned, by the way. Off the big man's knee. Yeah. Was, it was all by design. It was, all, you know. Um, no, I feel like I know we're going to kind of w- w- people like to kind of poo-poo the bubble a little bit. But we've seen him do these things in the playoffs. We've seen, I mean, maybe not at this level in the midseason, but we've seen him have these runs. Like, I think he can have that run in the playoffs. It'd be interesting to see. A, a fun game of of what if if it, it was Mike Conley right who missed that three in the yep, at that, the end of game, the game seven. seven yep it would be totally a fun what if if that went in and what's the rise you, you know but what would happen between those two teams um, and how things kind of shake out over the future but like I it's there it's there for him I think they have that there and I think that's something he can attain to I, I feel like we've seen some of it in the playoffs you know they the Utah teams had success to a degree in the playoffs, never going as far as everybody wanted them to, but I think yeah, it's, it's there. I'll say this. It, that bubble year, uh, he he averaged 36 on yeah. se- 70% true shooting. The following season, they, they went to the second round, and in 10 playoff games, he averaged 32 on 60% true shooting. That was two terrific postseasons in a row, offensively at least. But defense is another <laughs> oh, aspect of it. But offensively, but that was two great postseasons in a row. I remember coming him coming off that and thinking, holy cow, like that this dude I mean, is a superstar. Memphis couldn't stop him in that series. You know, they they really struggled with him. It was granted a younger Memphis team, but like they really struggled with them with with trying to contain him. And I think that's sort of the uh uh thing there. It's there. It's just finding the right I mean, he has uh, a bag, man. He has oh, a, yeah. a complete bag. So, like okay. the, the, the high gather Euro steps, oh. like just ridiculous. And like the, you know, behind the back into step back and through the legs into step back. Like he's just, I mean, when he's on, he is on. I mean, I the one game I just remember watching of him this year was the Paris game where it's like, it felt like everybody else on the Nets and Cavs just got off the plane, but Donovan Mitchell had been like waiting there for a week to play that game and was just had like 10 times more energy and more pop than anybody else on the floor. John, this is what like every midseason game of his has looked like. If you pull up tape for the last three years, he just looks like he's playing at a different speed. It's like Deion Sanders versus like regular NFL players kind of thing. And this has me thinking right back to like the stagger, maybe not in the literal sense of how you do the lineups, but I, I'm going to say, I'm going to say a big word around here. Um, heliocentric. Like, are they better off empowering him more? Because the passing is part of this that has come along and developed over the years. And that's what I really noticed when he's carving up teams like this. We talked about the, the postseason scoring in the bubble and the year after where he exploded scoring-wise, and I think he had a ton of pull-up threes, and he's always been an underrated shooter and things like that. But if he can collapse the defense in the playoffs, if you can find a way to get the spacing 
that they've had. And Jared Allen, to his credit, I thought I think Jared Allen has done a great job with these like little floaters and push shots in the middle of the paint, finishing and things like that. We know about him as a, a lob threat and offensive rebounder as well. And if passer. They can, yeah, he's, and he can make some passes too. So yeah. if they can get that from him, is it the kind of thing where like if you put too much on Garland's plate, you actually take you, you take away a little bit of that Mitchell that heliocentric like rhythm is that their best pathway to playoff offense I'm just I, it's funny you guys mentioned the Knicks earlier because I thought that was a bad matchup for them last year and you could argue maybe both teams are a little more dangerous this time around and the question is if they met in a playoff series again like is it the same issue because I just thought the Cavs didn't have the offensive juice last season uh, in that series, but maybe the pathway to that is more spacing and more running through Mitchell. And Mo, I know you don't want the ISO game. I don't want that either, but just let him get in there, touch the paint, and start spreading the ball that way. Well, I I guess this goes to the broader point of one of my beliefs is I don't know if you can really win in the playoffs with heliocentric basketball. I think that's just more and more. I mean, like the level of how good you have to be at heliocentric basketball come playoff time when you get to be scouted and watched and broken down in every which way where a team gets that opportunity to finally lock in on a specific team that they know they're going to play at least four times I think it becomes very challenging I think the I think heliocentric basketball is a great way for regular season wins but I think it really becomes a problem come playoffs for those teams that are that because you then become predictable all right I just got to find a way to stymie Donovan Mitchell, which isn't easy, but I just got to find a way to slow him down 10, 15%, and now their offense is going to collapse. And I think that becomes a, a a problem for teams come playoff time. So for me, that wouldn't be the pathway. I actually enjoy the way they're playing when they run sets and run offense and then eventually end up into ISO. I'm not saying don't ISO Mitchell and don't do just straight 1-4 pick and roll and whatever and all that stuff, but like I think there's a way to balance those two. And I think if you stay stuck in heliocentric basketball, and we know Donovan Mitchell's really good at it, then you end up like the Jazz team. Well, which, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's ISO-heavy, though, right? I wouldn't say you have to attack this from an ISO-heavy perspective. I think one of the things that makes Mitchell so good, and maybe heliocentrism is the wrong word then, because I think one of the things that makes him so good is when he's away from the ball, He's a, he's an elite shooter, but he can also attack a closeout. And I think it was in the Clippers' first half, because uh, it's just fresh in my head, he's in the corner, right? And so you run an yeah. offensive set. Maybe you have a staggered screen. Maybe Struess is the ball handler. Le- Levert is the ball handler. Uh, the defense hugs in. You skip it to the wing. The ball hits Mitchell in the corner. Now someone's closing out at Donovan Mitchell. He up fakes, gets by, and now he's coming downhill. And it's like... This is what happens in basketball when Donovan Mitchell's in this position, at least in January and February. Um, he's going to dunk on you. <laughs> he's going to get free throws <laughs> or he's going to make a pass that's a super high value, like a drop off for the layup right there at the next at the next help or spray to a shooter for a wide open three. So it doesn't to me doesn't have to be ISO. Um but I, I actually agree with you. I don't think you can play too much through one guy and win in the playoffs. I wonder, though, if you can do that to win a round or two in the playoffs and maybe if that's the if that's what the Cavs team is capped at, something like that. I'm just wondering, like, are they more prepared to deal with Mitchell being double teamed than they were mm-hmm. a year ago? Because, I mean, we're just talking about how great an offensive player he is. Well, in the playoffs, what does that mean? That means that, like, he's going to draw two to the ball, right? Like... And I, I think Allen is a much better is as in it. I think year by year just improves as a playmaker. Um, I, we saw it in Brooklyn. I mean, I remember watching him in first couple of years in Brooklyn. And one, he he couldn't finish at the rim unless there was nobody in within you know arm reach of him. And then two, like he he wasn't a roll and kick kind of guy. Now I think he's just become a much better at that. I was just looking at their catch and shoot numbers. They're still sort of middle of the pack in catch and shoot three point percentage, but it's better than they were last year. Um, Struess is hot and cold, like as as, right. as much of a sort of upgrade as he was. He's still like if we look back at that playoff run with the Heat last year, he didn't shoot all that great over that over that series over that year. 
So that's my my thinking. Just when we just talking about postseason, is are they more prepared to deal with defenses taking the ball out of Mitchell's hands? Like they they can, you know. And if they are, then yeah, let Donovan Mitchell cook and and force defenses to then you know take the ball out of his hands and then therefore and then see where we go from there. And we like what we have when it when that happens when we're playing four on three and he's not involved. I just I, I kind of just go back to that that series against the Knicks. I mean, the the problem was like every time they went into hero ball with Mitchell at the end of games, it didn't work out for them. Whereas and it was pretty obvious where it was like when it was in Darius Garland's hands, they actually got a good look. They didn't make them because they didn't have anybody that could make shots at that point, you know, but like it was I think they got a better, better look in that sense. So I like Ben, what you're describing, that's not heliocentric, the pl- like what you described, right? Like kick it to him in the corner and allow him to play against the second side. That's how they should use him. And that has to be something. And and from that, that's where he's going to cook. And that just needs to be part of the puzzle piece in your offense, right? And that could be an entirely – and it's totally different, too, if it's Darius Garland breaking down the defense and kicking it out to Mitchell because now it's even a harder closeout. Now it's more opportunities for him to kind of attack off of that side. And I think that's more the uh, side of it. But if it ends up a situation where it becomes kind of hero ball centric, which is what – I felt like happened to them a little bit in the playoffs was Mitchell kept trying to do it. And maybe some of it was the bravado of like, I'm in New York. I want to do it, you know, hometown, everything like that. But I think that's a failure for them. That hurts them. And I think that's what they need to stay away from. And the more they can incorporate these guys that they're bringing back healthy into more of an offense that flows and allows them all to kind of attack. I think then we're going like, okay, now they're a real team. Well, they had a hard time. I think my memory, you know, it's been a while now. My memory's starting to fade, but you would want Evan Mobley to be the short roll outlet valve when they throw two on the ball against their guards, but they had a hard time. You know, you get Mitchell the ball, Thibodeau sends two defenders to him on the the sideline, and it just kills the entire possession versus opening up a four on three and getting something good. So then you say, like, I think, as the series went on, JB was trying to find ways to get Mobley the ball in the middle of the court. It still wasn't what you would want. You know, okay, we swing, we, we lob it over the top and he catches it five feet outside the three point line. And then Evan Mobley's facing the basket and he's got to make some decisions about two or three dribbles and a lob and a kick out. It just didn't work. So I don't know. Are we, are we, are we moving forward with Cleveland on with cautious optimism? It doesn't sound like, uh, the discussion is getting us to this place of like, yeah, they could upset one of those teams, you know, one of those top three or four teams in the East in the second round. Whereas I feel like with the Knicks, uh, we did a deep dive, I think last episode on the Knicks. And, you know, you kind of take away when you look at the Knicks is like, ah, they could catch if you're Philly or Milwaukee and you're not careful, like that's not going to be a fun series with the Knicks. 35 I, games left for the Cavs. I'm going to watch those 35 games pretty carefully. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, look, the way the East is kind of shaking out, like I think there's definitely an opportunity for them to get, you know, around, you know, under their belt and get it, get a series win. I mean, if they're looking at themselves right now as a three seed, and depending who finishes at six, like it's, it's interesting for that. I, I I am optimistic just in the sense of like, I am encouraged by how they're playing. You know, John made the point too. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're beating the crap out of the bad teams. That's step one. Right. And, and, and they have a really nice win with the Clippers and and there's still a lot of season left to be played. Like, I think they can do some real interesting things with what they have. And and it'll be interesting to see the progression of it, but it's all going to come down to how do you incorporate Garland and Mobley back into this and not lose the momentum you have. Let's uh let's finish up on a fun one. So we've had all these hot teams this season. The question in my mind now, is there another team lurking with a run? I sketched out a few candidates myself, but I want to put you guys uh in the hot seat. Also, John, did you it's gotten very dark. If you're watching on YouTube, you may have noticed. <laughs> but the sun like, has set. What has happened? John is in the dark the sun all of a sudden. Has set in New Jersey. I'm sorry, I apologize. <laughs> 
This is no, fascinating. I'm not, I'm not close enough to a light switch to, uh, this, to adjust. This is why Mo just stands in front of a, a blackboard, a, a basketball court blackboard. No, I, I, I do that because the last time I, I didn't have it up, somebody made fun of me for my wall. So, I, you know, uh, it's an old house I'm in. So it's like, no, yours is fine. I was because I was because I had wood paneling. People thought I was a serial killer. Didn't need to deal with that. <laughs> um, where was I? What would this? How do I transition out of it, what serial run? Hot killer? Seat, who, what Hot team do we think is going to be yes, on a run? Yes. Is Hot there team another has team the sun not set on in this? In the... <laughs> is there? there you uh, go. John, I'll ask you first. Is there another team that you think could sort of catch fire? We have thirty-five games left. Uh, it's been a wild season. What do you think? I mean, my, my first thought was the Pacers. Um, and the one number that pops out is Tyrese Halliburton and Pascal Siakam have played 88 minutes together so far. 88. Like, that's not much. Um, and they have a relatively easy, I think they have one of the three or four easiest schedules uh, going forward. I don't know, like, if they can, I guess the, the Sixers could sink, continue to sink, and the Pacers could move from six to five in the East. Um, and I don't know if, if there's value in that or not, but um, I just think that's a team that could probably be pretty good for the last 35 games or so, just because their two best players haven't really played together yet and they have an easy schedule. Mm. I did not think of them. That is fascinating. Yeah. Mo, go ahead. What do you got? I think you've thought of this one though, Ben, I think it's the Pelicans. You know, you look at them, they have a, a, a plus, I think 3.5 point differential. They're sitting at seven in the, in the Western conference. I think they have, it's so they're they're also kind of a weird team, but they have a ton of wing defenders and, and long lanky guys. They have obviously Zion, which to be honest has been an up and down season. There are moments where he's good, and then there's moments where it's like, dude, do you even want to play? And then there's you know Ingram. They have a lot of stuff. CJ, like they have a lot of talent on that roster. I think they could find a run in them, you know, and 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 climb up in the standings and get out of the uh, the playing tournament range. I think that's a team I look at going like, this is a team I kind of think has a run in them to win, you know, whatever, 12 of their last 15 or something like that. I think that's a squad I'd keep an eye on. That's a team where like 50 games into the season, I still don't understand quite. Exactly, like, yeah. It, the starting it, lineup still doesn't make sense to me offensively just because it's CJ McCollum and four guys who you don't necessarily want spacing the floor and – I don't know. And defensively, they've had success, but I just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, I like when they put Trey Murphy in place of like Jones or Ingram or Williamson, um, but they haven't done that a lot, frankly. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I can't figure that out. And their results make it even more difficult because they'll have some good wins followed by some, some Bad rough losses. losses. Yeah. Yeah. It, they're they're a frustrating and confusing team, which might be why I've, I'm attracted to them because I just feel like that's my nature. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they would probably be my pick as well, though. If I had to, if I had to earmark one team that I think could put together one of these, like, whoa, did they go sixteen and four? Like, how did they? Weren't they just close to five hundred and now they're like third in the conference or something? Although I don't know if anyone's going to catch the big four uh, in the West, but like they look like a team. You mentioned C.J. McCollum just in the last month. He's he's moved into like the top 25 in the last month uh, in our box plus minus, minus model at thinkingbasketball.net. Uh, not for the season, just the last month. He's just been on fire. The shooting, the the sort of like if you think about the peak essence, essence of a C.J. McCollum experience, he's been doing it more for the last month. Um, the shot's been dialed in, playmaking, things like that. You mentioned Trey Murphy the third. Uh, he's obviously a, f a phenomenal shooter, attacks closeouts like a maniac, can defend. I think he's just a fascinating fit. Ingram Ingram himself is like an up and down, very interesting player where um, some games you get this tough shot making and this passing that you're like, man, Brandon Ingram, so you can make the all-star team. Like this is, this is really hard to defend. This is really beautiful. And then you have other games where the shot is off and the decision making isn't as consistent. And then of course, I think it's, comes back to Zion, who, to his credit, does look like he's in better shape. Uh, the game the other night against San Antonio was just 
free entertainment or I guess how much it costs to pay for your television subscription or league pass or whatever. Uh, but like that was unbelievable. If you guys missed that back and forth matchup with him attacking Victor Wembenyama, uh, Wemby won a few rounds. I think Zion won the fight. He just looks a little crisper at the rim than he did three months ago. Looks like he's lost a little weight. And so you're like, okay, it's February, right? Does he relax at the all-star break or do they come out of the all-star break have a good schedule, have momentum, and things finally click because there's an abundance of talent on that roster. An abundance of talent. So, yeah, they would probably be my pick. One one other team to just throw in there to keep an eye on as a bonus pick is the Dallas Mavericks. I mean, they've only gotten 23 games together with Kyrie and Luka. If they can find a way to get them kind of healthy and, and, and get an extended run, and get them both on the court at the same time, I think we might be able to see them kind of put uh, a, a nice stretch together. But uh, again, it's just hard when you're kind of looking at the injury stuff. But that'd be a, my second pick if I had to pick two. Uh, yeah, they, I mean, their injuries go beyond basically yeah. Kyrie's absence. Like I looked at like their top nine guys. Like, first of all, like they're, we think that their starting lineup would be Doncic, Irving, Exum, Derek Jones, and lively like those five guys have barely played together but if you even look at like their top nine guys i looked at it like they've had no more than six of those guys in 24 of their last 32 games like hmm. they have just been you know we're talking about kleba like beyond the the starters grant williams um i'm forgetting it somebody um tim like, hardaway hardaway yeah like they've just been so depleted and like yeah I, I i don't think there's a high ceiling just because i don't believe in them defensively primarily yeah but it would be nice to see them you know have everybody together or at least eight of those nine guys together for you know 10 games in a row like that would be nice guys here's some uh here's some trivia you know the first guest in thinking basketball podcast history does anyone know this no. It was Mo DeKeel. was the what? first guest. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yes. I'm only bringing that up because today is the 250th episode. You started so poorly. Yeah. I, I like this. This is actually a psychological tactic of mine. You start low. Yes. I advise this. I advise this in all romantic and dating settings as well. You want to start with like a very low bar and then you'll look like you're improving quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, nice. Good to know. <laughs> I'm taking credit for the podcast now. <laughs> um, yes, we'll send you the royalties. You'll get the check later. Uh, thanks, guys, for, for coming on. I hope you hope you enjoyed this. It was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for having us. It was great. If thanks. you uh, if you want to support us, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Otherwise, that is it for this one. We're going to try to wrangle Cody back into this seat. At some point next week for our our sixth, is it humanly possible, our sixth annual sub-all-star team? I cannot wait to do this, the snubs and the cuts, and you guys will be so excited about the, the sixth annual sub-all-star team that we put together. Otherwise, that is it for this one. Thanks for listening all the way through, and as always, I hope you're having a great day.